Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts, Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com slash newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today, I'm delighted to welcome longtime education correspondent for NPR and best-selling author Anya Kemenetz. Anya recently published The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now, where she takes a deep dive into how the pandemic disrupted the lives of children, families, and communities, and what we as a society can and should do to move forward and to mitigate the damage done. Anya, I'm delighted to have you here today with me. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Lucy. I love your work. Likewise, let's start with talking about this book right off the bat, The Stolen Year. Why did you title this book, Anya, The Stolen Year and not The Lost Year? I'd love to open with this framing where you're clearly talking about something that was taken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was a huge insight. The, The working title was, in fact, The Lost Year. And I'll be honest, there were conversations I had early on, and a couple of them were with Black women, and I think that's important, because they were about how we label our kids and how the disadvantages that come from circumstance somehow get transferred onto the kids and become a deficit that the kids have. And we talk about a learning gap, or or we talk about achievement gap or learning loss, somehow you know, you should be talking about what we failed to give the kids, and yet you end up talking about somehow how the kids have failed. And so if you called it the lost year, you would be transferring that guilt onto the child somehow, or the shame or the stigma of not having these things. But I wanted to call it the stolen year because I wanted to keep the focus where it belongs, which is on how adults failed children. I completely agree that it's more appropriate than ever for adults to take responsibility for the way we don't seem to prioritize children's health and well-being in this country. And you have investigated this problem for years and years and years, well before COVID-19. Tell me what the specific problems that COVID highlighted that were pre-existing Mm-hmm. Pre-COVID, we didn't have good childcare infrastructure in this country. We had enormous disparities in education and the delivery of quality education along ethnic lines, racial lines, and socioeconomic lines. Talk to me about what sort of threads became unraveled even further during the pandemic. Sure, absolutely. So just to like put a finer point on what you're talking about, the three major components that every rich country has that we don't have are paid family leave subsidized child care. We really don't have a child care system, period, in this country. It's a total hodgepodge patchwork of whatever people can handle. So paid family leave, subsidized child care, and direct cash support to families. That's what other rich countries do, and we don't do that. We also don't have public health care, as you well know, although there's more of a system for a public insurance for children than there are for a lot of working age adults, right? 
during the pandemic, the role that schools were playing as the social support system in many neighborhoods and for many families fell apart. I mean, schools are the largest provider of free childcare for working age adults in this country. They are the second largest public provider of hot meals and certainly the largest for children. They serve 8 billion meals a year. They are a safe place, physically the safest place for children, safer than the streets and safer than many homes. And that's a very hard truth to swallow, especially when you get into, you know, cities like New York where one in 10 kids in the public school system, 100,000 kids is housing insecure and is in the shelter system. So their school is a safer, more welcoming place and more appropriate place than the place that they lay their heads at night. You know, this is also part of the character of the way that schools are the only public institution that's universally open and welcoming to undocumented people. You know, schools must take in children who are newcomers to this country. And we have a very large proportion of kids that fit that prescription as well. And so here you are in your Brooklyn abode with your two daughters and husband, having written extensively about these pre-existing problems. You're watching the news in March 2020 about this enormous trauma that's coming and is arriving. You actually witnessed in New Orleans the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, and you saw firsthand how disrupting kids' education directly impacted not only the kids, but families, communities, and took a toll that wasn't just in the moment. It was lasting on children's education, their social emotional health, their sense of safety and security. Did you see this coming when you saw the news in 2020 in New York? Yeah, I did. I mean, I was here in my home office where I'm talking to you right now, and I flashbacked immediately to those weeks right after the storm where I was in shelters talking to children who were out of school. And I was also in schools that were trying to bring in kids and welcome those kids in, but they were basically shell-shocked. And I was back in New Orleans 10 years later in 2015, seeing how these effects had lingered and how there were still so many kids who had never really connected with school, who hadn't found their life paths, who were, you know, turning off to different kinds of lives because of that failure of their education system and of the entire social structure that they were trying to grow up in. So I did know the other area where I really drew on, you know, a wealth of knowledge was I had started to sort of speak to people around the globe. And Rebecca Winthrop is someone who she's at the Brookings Institution, and she kind of has coined the term education in emergencies, which is the idea that disaster response needs to include education right away. Because if we don't get on it, so many other things start to go sideways. Kids need a safe place to be. They need organization. They need that caring adult, that routine. It's not just about the academics, obviously. And so I talked to these experts and I wrote a piece on April 2nd, 2020, that laid out what was likely to happen if schools stayed closed for what we were thinking might be six to eight weeks at that point. And what the research showed from countries all over the world was that, number one, the continuity efforts, the remote learning are going to actually exacerbate existing gaps because the kids that are able to take advantage of it are the ones that already have a good setup and good support at home. But that doesn't mean you don't do it. It means you know that it is a stopgap, right? The piece said that caregivers and children were at risk of toxic stress when schools were closed. We're multiplying the stress on caregivers. That's going to be translated to kids. And arguing that older kids, teenagers, And people at a transition points in their school careers are the ones we're most worried about when school gets interrupted because they're more likely to be taking on paid work and caregiving responsibilities outside of their school careers. And they don't have the time to get back on track. A six-year-old has time to get back on track. 
a 12-year-old might never get there. So these were some of the things that I was talking to the country about in April of 2020. And again, you know, that was based on the notion that schools would be closed for six to eight weeks. Yeah. I wrote an op-ed with Roxanne Silver, who's a trauma specialist out in California in April 2020, about this is mass trauma, and we can take the lessons we've learned from earthquakes and hurricanes and 9-11 to see there are going to be, not surprisingly, physical, emotional, mental health ramifications of this event that we can start to plan for now. I'm particularly interested in the mental health toll on young people because young people become older people. They become my patients. And as you have eloquently said in your book, and you've been speaking about this, school is not just about math and science and reading. It's about safety. It's about security. It's about nurturing our whole person. And it's the best place for kids to be. And as recently as this week, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Children's Hospital Association and the American Adolescent Psychiatric Association together have written another letter to the White House to say, please declare another mental health state of emergency for teens and adolescents, doubling down on what they had declared last year, along with the Surgeon General. What did you learn after Katrina vis-a-vis kids' mental health in crisis, particularly in the most marginalized communities, and in general in your reporting? And how do you see the mental health toll of school closures and the absence of, quote, normal school affect teenagers in COVID? That's a big question, but I'm just going to start. We're going to start just chipping away at the iceberg here. So I started getting cold calls from mental health professionals in June of 2020 saying, you're a reporter. I need you to know that the kids are not okay. Please talk about this. And so that was really brought to me. And then as I was, of course, talking and profiling families, I saw how these things were cross-cutting. I mean, kids who are low income and who are worried about getting enough food to eat also get depressed and they're also anxious. But sometimes, you know, we move on the hierarchy of needs and we don't pay attention to that as much as we should. Kids who have learning differences, oftentimes those are cross-exacerbated with mental health issues because they see that they're not achieving or they're not able to engage with their learning, especially with online learning. And that is so frustrating and it's so upsetting for them. There's a myriad of issues that I heard, a flood of families from all over the country. There's lots of different stories in the book. I think on the level of kids with disabilities, you know, I spent in-depth time with the family of Jonah who had autism, dyslexia, ADHD, but also had suicidal ideation and outbursts that only got worse, honestly, over the years that we followed him. He had been on a successful trajectory. He'd been making progress before the pandemic. And that's what's so upsetting for everyone, I think, just to see that change we, you know, we can talk about the loss of social interaction. We have to complicate that picture a little bit and be honest about the fact that school can be very stressful as well for a lot of kids. And there's bullying and there's school refusal now that kids are coming back. They're finding that it's hard for them to feel uncomfortable in school. And what's really sad to see is that peer interaction, which is so often a source of support for kids, now they have been so socially isolated, they often don't know how to relate to each other. So I saw, this is totally anecdotally, over the summer, I had a couple of friends who sent their daughters to summer camp and their daughters are calling, being like, I can't get along with people. I need to come home. I don't know how to do this. So socially, it's been really, really hard. And the re-entry is almost even harder. The other thing with adolescence that I think is important to think about in terms of how the pandemic affected mental health is an adolescent's need for status, accomplishment, you know, the higher order needs, because what we took away from them was a sense of milestones 
and a sense of the order and structure of the meaning of the world. So this is a real existential thing. And I mean, that, that is very real. Like the work of that time period is who am I and what is my life about? So one of the most poignant, I think for me, statements was made really early on in the pandemic with a boy named Osvaldo. He was living in foster care with his grandmother and he was a really good student. He loved school. And when they went to remote in spring of 2020, they took away the grading. Basically, they said to him, none of the work that you do matters for the rest of the year. And obviously, the reason for that was they didn't want to stress the people out and people had different access to laptops and, and internet. But he said to me, he's like, if you only have the grind and the grind stops, there's no more point. I think that's such a good point that, you know, it's like kids need to hear no. Kids need to have boundaries and limits and they need structure. And I think without the contours of their everyday life, just the schedule, the mentorship from teachers, coaches and peers, and without the sort of, as you said, higher order needs being met, I think that a lot of people felt sort of hopeless and pointless. And then there's the internet and people are like, oh, I could drop out of school and I could become an influencer. What is school even about? I think a lot of kids, as you pointed out in your book, question, what is this about anyway? Why am I going to school? What does it even mean? Yeah. I mean, so it's sort of like a great resignation or a quiet quitting that we're seeing back here now, because honestly, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of parents have the panic and they're like, I've got to get my kid back on the track, you know, and, and we got to get them ready for a good college and they miss two years of extracurriculars or they're behind on this and that. And the kids are like, I don't know, I saw behind the curtain and it doesn't seem like adults really have this figured well out. And I'm not sure that I want to play this game anymore. Like we need to come up with something else that our kids, you know, want to be spending their time doing. And I, I mean, that was a problem facing American high school and the American education system long before the pandemic right? The fact that high school didn't really speak to the passions and the needs of either what our kids wanted or what the world needed was a problem. And a rigor that was divorced from any true critical thinking, right? This obsession with standardized tests. So I think there is a need for a reckoning and then just trying to like stuff it all back the memory hole and do everything the same way, but more so is just not going to work for a lot of people. Let's talk about reentry. So as you know, the word normal has been sort of weaponized against people. I think there was nothing normal about our education system pre-pandemic. I don't think anybody wanted to go back to the old normal. But for lack of a better word, normal to me, when you talk about school reopenings or school reentry, meant going back to at least the regular contours of everyday life where you show up at school, you are fed, you are seen for who you are, you are educated and you have opportunities. Why do you think the word normal was so fraught? And normalcy is not a good word. I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. This has been a really painful time. America has the highest death rate from COVID in the rich world. We lost a million people. And it sometimes seems like there's not really room for that grief. We're all carrying a piece of it, and some of us are carrying a huge, enormous load of it. And so sometimes the word normal feels like aggressive against that loss. I wish we had a better word to talk about giving our kids what we want to give them because even the kids who have been personally bereaved by COVID want to be able to play with their friends and want to be able to have a caring teacher and want to be able to see their friends smile. There are components of this that we can all agree on. And what's been so hard is that we're just, we're living with very different pandemics inside of us. You said it so beautifully, and you talk about grief so elegantly in your book. 
the thing that comes to mind when I think about grief and loss and the attempt to resume more normalcy post-trauma is the idea of holding paradox. This notion that we can have intense feelings of sadness and hopefulness and resilience at the same time. That is not possible for everyone. Not everyone has the luxury of post-traumatic growth or even going back to the school they were in before after a trauma. But I do think that humans are infinitely capable of having multiple emotions at one time. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think you're right that the notion of resuming normalcy felt like a slap in the face to people for whom school was a pretty atrocious place to begin with and for whom COVID was particularly wretched. Um, At the same time, I think we can acknowledge the loss of life and the loss of livelihood and the loss of normalcy because of the virus itself and try to meet people where they are and build back and get kids into a more regular sense of their everyday lives. Yeah, I think that's very well put. I mean, I just want to pick up on what you said about, you know, this was a key insight for me in thinking about why did the discussion about reopening schools get so polarized and so nasty, particularly in sort of blue cities that stayed closed the longest as the facts on the ground kind of continue to deteriorate and our kids continue to suffer? People really were forced into their corners by this. And part of the insight for me was to, again, hear about how differently white, Asian, Black, and Hispanic families viewed the same situation and the same schools sometimes. Oftentimes they were different schools, but bringing with them their own legacies of experiencing public school as a place that was offering opportunity, but also the doors were closed. There was segregation. There was a lack of resources and you could see the diversion of resources from one community to another so that many communities saw their schools as a place where they had been deprived and they hadn't been treated well. They hadn't been treated with respect or with honesty. And so it was very, very hard for them to see schools the way that other communities saw schools, which was as a beacon and as a resource and as something that they were entitled to and that ought to be available to them no matter what, because that just hadn't been their experience. I think you're exactly right. And it created this culture war that just only inflamed pre-existing tensions and really, unfortunately, pitted parents against educators when, I mean, we all know that children thrive when parents and educators and communities come together to support young minds. Where do you think parents fall in the role of children's education post-pandemic? Parents are, on the one hand, thought to be these like micromanaging nightmares. And on the other hand, parents are entitled to want to have a say and a role in their kids' education. Mm -hmm. I mean, the difficulty arises from the fact that our schools are like service providers to our families of crucial services that we need. And they're also a location where we come together in a democracy for civic growth. And they're also public resources that everybody is entitled to share. And those are like very contrasting things, right? And oftentimes, I think in the way that the media portrays it and the way that perhaps, you know, our culture influences it, parents are pushed to look at schools as the provider of educational services to my child. I am the consumer. I'm the customer. The teachers work for me. The principal works for me. And they're trying to satisfy my needs. And that's what I'm doing. And, you know, you can purchase education from a private school that essentially will be set up that way. That's what they're, you know, bound and determined, even though there's still going to be tension because even a private school is like, we need to tolerate discomfort. We need to have different points of view here. Like in order to do education, 
part of what you're signing up for is my kid's going to be in an environment that's different from what I can provide at home. They're going to be with different people than the people in my family, and they're going to be exposed to different ideas. And forget about the civic function of education and just, you know, building a democracy, which for me, like even more extreme, like you need to do those things, even just for your kid to learn to become a critical thinker that that needs to be true. They need to be a little uncomfortable. They need to work harder than they might want to. They need to be subject to different influences than what you have at home. And so that doesn't fit the service provider model. We need to be able to think about schools as a space that we're all invested in, in order for them to have the best outcomes, not only for our kids, but for all the kids. Because even if you don't have kids, we need our public schools to be strong and we need them to be turning out children who are bright and resilient and capable and have these different kinds of competencies and skills. So it's big. I mean, it's a lot of different things at once, but a school is not the grocery store. It's not a place where you go and like get what you need and come home. And if they don't have what you need to complain to the manager, that's not what they are. They're a space that we all create together. So what practical advice do you have to parents in a public school system right now? You know, they're really stressed about the learning loss. They may see their child more isolated, socially awkward. Maybe they're struggling with mental health issues. And the parents are naturally frustrated because they've had their own trauma during the pandemic. Their kids have had trauma. And it's easy to take frustration out on the schools. And it's easy, you know, particularly based on what we saw in the media, to vilify teachers when teachers are not to be vilified. Teachers have their own set of challenges. And, you know, no one goes into teaching to be treated like a short order chef, right? You're there to educate and love these children. What advice do you have to parents right now as we reenter this messy landscape? Try to do a mental reset and see the school as your partner and your compliment, that you have what you can provide and the school has what the school can provide. And schools will have different strengths. Some schools, their strength is the social community and the friendliness and the welcoming environment, the diversity, the friendships that your kid will have. And maybe what you will then be working on on your own is a kid's academic achievement. Other schools might be really good with the rigor and the standardization, and you need to help them negotiate the social environment at school. But I also think that for a lot of families, they're seeing their kids with, for lack of a better term, social deficits. And my advice on that is find the social environment where your kid can feel safe and comfortable. And it might not be at school. It might be with cousins. It might be with younger kids or older kids. It might be in a Sunday school environment or some families I'm talking about are mentioning martial arts because it integrates some of the mindfulness and the, you know, emotional literacy. So find the social environment where your kid can be. If it's not at school, it's okay. As long as they have friends and the ability to make friends and feel safe and, and comfortable and welcomed. You know, obviously the school can't be a hostile place and can be a bullying place, but try to come at it with a cooperative mindset and a win-win type of mindset because teachers are hearing so much from so many parents. And sometimes there's a squeaky wheel effect and some administrations will respond more to the parents that are complaining more and so that you feel that you have to throw into it. But parental voice that comes in and says, I want to work with you. I recognize what it is that you do well. And this is what I can do well. And how can we work well together? That's just going to be received so much better. I think you're right. I think it's true of really any relationship, right? If you lead with empathy and curiosity, then you're destined to have a better outcome of the conversation than if you lead with blame and shame. I think it's also important as I talk to parents who are patients of mine, and I'm a parent myself, I know you're a parent, to kind of identify where you are on this sort of emotional spectrum. You had this nice graph that you put up in one of your talks where you talk about where are you on this continuum of 
struggle to languishing to thriving. Like, where are you? And this is what I talk to my patients about. Not just are you anxious? Because, of course, we have anxiety. That's part of how we survive. Where are you on the continuum of anxiety? How much brain space is being occupied by worry about your child, by worry about your employment status, by worry about whatever is going on in your internal or external world? And what are you then doing about it? So it's it's naming the feelings and then how are you managing those feelings? And I think for a lot of parents, anxiety is sticking to the kids, as it does in general. Anxiety becomes sticky when we're in a state of fear. And then it often for parents sticks to the child's well-being, which is normal. But staying there and not identifying that and then externalizing it and blaming others without owning our own emotional state can be toxic. I love that. And I want to add on to that. I don't know if you know the like Gottman's like marriage counseling. So like John Gottman, it's a married couple. They give out like marriage therapy. And one of their sort of tricks is they're like a healthy marriage has a five to one positive to negative interaction. That's how positive you have to be because negative gets so blown up, right? Everybody experiences a negative. I feel like partly because of all the talk about kids and what we're hearing from schools, what we're hearing from the media, what we're hearing from professionals about kids, there is a focus on the kids and parents need to make sure that their cup is filled, that they're managing their own mental health and their own health and that they're taking the time that they need so that they can share the positivity with their kids. Because you might be so worried about your kids' progress and so worried about them socially and so worried about them academically, physically, we didn't even talk about that. I mean, obesity is up in kids, diabetes you're on top of your kid with like 10 different things and you need to reel it back and reestablish the positive to negative balance and make sure that you're propping up your kid, recognizing what's so great about them, having those positive moments together, having that fun together, because you're not going to be able to change them with the criticisms. You'd have to have that positive basis of a relationship in order for the change to come. And it's going to be better for you too. And you also need to be taking care of yourself. Let's talk about your kids and your parenting and how your research and the last two years have informed how you see your own kids and how you see your own role as a parent. I think it was helpful, number one, because I did have that bit of a distance on things. I tell my editor, Ben, like if he hadn't come to me with the idea of writing this book, I don't know how I would have gotten through the pandemic because I was able every day to call people up and talk to them about what we were going through. And sometimes they were researchers or like incredible, you know, insights or experience or historic perspective and how that translated into my everyday. And I was also talking to child development experts and we were putting out episodes of Life Kit from our houses, talking to parents about how to get through this and how to homeschool and how to manage all of it. And so that really helped, I think, my approach to it for my kids. It was hard on them both in different ways. So I had a third grader and a three-year-old when the pandemic started, three-year-old still in like overnight diapers. And the third grader accelerated into more screen time. Her social outlet was Roblox and Minecraft and iMessaging and, and video chatting with her friends. And, you know, I'd written a previous book of kind of about screen time and kids. And my philosophy with her was really like, if you're in a live conversation, I'm okay with that. I don't want you scrolling endlessly by yourself. But if you're talking to other people in real time, I'm okay. I think that was really helpful for her. And she kept those friendships strongly and didn't feel so isolated. Sometimes she would do like a video sleepover. So she would get on the iPad and like eat dinner with her friend and they'd watch a movie together and even go to sleep. <laughs> so cute. I love that idea. Yeah. I mean, oh my God, so heartbreaking, right? 
And then the other thing I think was honestly for me was because I was immersed in the research and the science as it was going, I felt like we were able to figure out ways to be in person and do things in person again. The three-year-old her Montessori opened up in July, 2020, and it had masks and it was small enough that it was a community of parents that, you know, if somebody traveled out of town, they would tell people if there was a case in the house, they would tell people we didn't have any quarantines. We stayed operating with that school through all the way through pre-K. And that was incredible. And she could play outside with her friends on the playground. So we figured out ways. I didn't feel like I was at the mercy of somebody else's interpretation of the public health guidance. I felt like I was empowered to interpret it and make the trade-offs and the choices that were right for my family. And those were often in the direction of spending time with other people and with our family members and prioritizing our mental health. I felt the same way in the pandemic. I felt like having a front row seat to the data, being a physician, talking to patients every day and hearing their stories helped me because I didn't feel so crazy. And then I also felt like I was in control more than other people were able to be because I can read data. I can see the studies. The roots of health and well-being are in having access to information and data and having trusted guides. And luckily, you and I were able to have a front row seat and be part of the process. But how do you talk to your girls now about what happened? And as you talk about post-traumatic growth, and how do you learn from the last two years in your personal life and your family life? You know, it's been interesting as they've grown and are able more to reflect on the last couple of years. And it's similar to the way, like, you know, we're a very privileged family in a lot of ways. And how do you talk to your kids about sort of inclusivity and the fact that there's different rules in different households, different people have different experiences. Maybe they haven't been as lucky as you have, or, you know, some of the kids in your class, they didn't get to go to pre-K. You got to go to pre-K. And so they're needing a little bit of extra time. So a lot of it is about empathy. A lot of it is about understanding that people made different decisions for different reasons. And then there's talking about sort of the things that we missed out on. I mean, for my older kid, she didn't get a chance to really pursue any sports the last few years. I mean, there were other things that we were spending time doing, and she didn't have the same amount of in-person time as my younger kid. So thinking about, okay, what do you want to do now? Like, how do we allocate your time and figure out basically how you want to spend it? And I think part of what we're also doing is we're saying, like, what did we positively learn we liked having family time together. We like doing things together. And sometimes they want to have a pandemic weekend, like just not have plans and be in their PJs. I really appreciate that because I'm the cruise director and I want to like plan a lot of activities and like, oh, there's this thing and that thing. But actually they love that. They love the like unstructured time and the time together. And so figuring out a way to kind of build that back in, I think is a way of taking something positive out of something negative. Share with me one of the stories of one of the kids you followed during the pandemic who suffered horribly whether it was one of the special needs kids or a child who didn't have access to services of some other type that really, really suffered that you would imagine couldn't recover, but then is finding grit and determination as he or she faces the next chapter. It's complex. So Debbie was a kindergarten teacher, elementary school teacher in San Francisco, and most of her students are newcomers to the country, Spanish speaking, and she herself is Spanish speaking. It's a bilingual classroom. And so she introduced me to a couple of her students. One of them was living with a single mom who was cleaning hotel rooms. I call her Serena in the book, the little girl. She spent kindergarten on her mother's phone in the hotel rooms that her mother was cleaning. And so her experience of kindergarten was totally passive and her mother really, she wept. She was so committed and so devoted to her daughter and the fact that she couldn't really sit next to her and help her. She didn't have the time to read to her or help her with her homework. 
She was working. She was standing in lines for food pantries and they went hungry for a little while, especially before they got, you know, cash assistance. You know, it was, it was a devastating time. Debbie came to my book event earlier this month in San Francisco and shared that she is back in school, you know, and she's making progress. She has that caring parent, you know, that person that, that is there for her. It's a hard road because the financial difficulties that those families faced have not gotten better since the pandemic. They've gotten worse. Inflation is hurting them really hard. The child tax credit went away. It's a really tough time. And all the problems of poverty that were there before and being undocumented that were there before are still there. But the school is back and the school is able to provide all of the services that it's been doing. And so she's seeing the kids start to make progress, even though it's, it's really hard. I mean, that gives me so much hope to think that there's progress even among the kids who suffered the most. And I think it's really a testament to children's sort of emotional flexibility and why we really, as you well know, need to invest more in kids um, in this country because, you know, they're more resilient than adults. And we can learn lessons from kids about how they achieve post-traumatic growth without really a formula or a plan. They just have this innate capability of flexibility when they're given love and support and their basic needs are met. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the students I think about a lot was someone I talked to early on in the pandemic because she came here with her family to Brooklyn from Venezuela like a year and a half before the pandemic. So she had to learn English, start a new school. She dug in immediately and started thriving. They'd been middle class in Venezuela and like, you know, that country just kind of fell apart. So she was doing well. She was writing and publishing things. And then the pandemic happened and she and her brother didn't leave the apartment for six weeks. They were extremely afraid and her parents were essential workers and she started having panic attacks and her life was really like shutting down. But the school provided help. She started talking to the school counselor over Zoom. And like by the end of the first year, she was sort of back on track and she was writing about how, you know, she found this resilience and been able to access mental health. That's such an incredible life trajectory. She's 17 years old. Like what a thing to go through. It's incredible. Yeah. And I think parents often need to be reassured that kids can be okay, that they're more okay than we sometimes give them credit for, and that they really need not to be micromanaged. We don't need to vilify schools and teachers. We need to really give the kids space to explore their own sort of problem-solving skills. And as long as they're loved and fed and given a place to go that's safe, they can be okay. I find that my kids respond really well to being seen as co-creators of their lives and problem solvers. When I have a problem, you know, that I bring to them, instead of it being like, here's what you need to do, it's, here's the problem, what do you think we should do? A hundred percent. And I think the modern American parent has been somehow trained to kind of fix or problem solve for our kids when they are really, really better off when we let them figure it out themselves as hard as it is to see them fail and struggle. I have a child who's overseas right now and he's really sick. I mean, he has like either the flu or COVID or I don't know what. And getting health services over there is difficult. And, you know, I just have to put my phone down and say, you know what, honey, you got to figure this out. It's hard, but it's actually great. It's not great that he's sick, but it's he's growing his sense of agency, which he had before. But that's how you get through it. For sure. And I mean, this is I'm talking to myself right now because my first grader had a meltdown this morning because she does not want to do homework. She thinks homework is like a huge imposition on her life and she can't believe that she has to do it. And so on the way to school, I was like, you have to do homework. You want to learn French, don't you? Like you don't want to switch out of your class and like not be with your friends. 
And she's like, no, 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 no. But when she comes home, I'm going to be like, here's the thing. Your teacher wants you to do homework. You don't want to do homework. What should we do about this? Again, it's leading with curiosity, asking the question instead of giving a declarative statement, checking our own anxiety at the door, and then a little bit of prayer and a little bit of faith (laughs) and a little bit of humor, because I think it's really, really difficult to raise children. And I mean, to use a cliche statement, I do think it takes a village. It takes teachers, educators, coaches, community members, religious leaders, parents working together. And then, you know, we need to take our cue from our kids because they are little Buddhas sometimes and know better than we do. Yeah, for sure. Anya, your book is really, really wonderful. When I read it, I was crying at times. I was weeping. I thought, oh my gosh, this is so depressing and so sad and so much of what I remember. But it ends on an optimistic note. It's not doom and gloom. It ends on a hopeful, future-looking note. What are your hopes for the next say, six to 12 months in the U.S. vis-a-vis our education system. What do you think are the big kind of action items that we need to tackle to make sure this never happens again? I think we need to lift up the schools, the districts, the states, and the leaders that are taking up the charge to restore our kids. You see it in polling because no matter how negative parents get around education, they still believe in their kids' schools and in their kids' teachers. And I think On the basis of that, there's a lot that can be rebuilt. I'm seeing states that are committing to extra learning time, that are committing to tracking down the kids that have drifted out of school and offering them a way back in, that are recruiting tutors. There's all kinds of national efforts to recruit tutors to give that extra learning time to kids that are making strides despite the now political opposition to what they call social emotional learning. I was at a national gathering of secondary school principals in July and in Kentucky, and even in a red state full of red state principals, they had no trouble saying, yeah, we need social emotional learning. We need mental health. We need to do this for our kids. There are success stories out there. There's a wave of schools that are recommitting to scientifically informed literacy teaching, which there's kind of a controversy going on now in the research about how we teach reading, but there's now a couple of states, Mississippi of all states is one of them that's recommitted to the science of reading and has had really good results about that. There's great examples out there and lifting them up, I think is important to do. Another kind of sleeper thing, Florida and Georgia and Tennessee all passed teacher pay increases in the last year and a half post-pandemic. So, you know, teacher pay is on the rise and there is a lot of interest in improving the working conditions, which are so often the learning conditions of our kids. I also love what you pointed out recently, this mental health first aid for teens. This program that is so exciting to me, this notion of teens learning emotional literacy to be able to help their peers. When you think about health, it begins with agency. And if your friend is struggling with disordered eating or depression or what have you, to be able to be a resource, I mean, that that's empowering for the kid. It's empowering for the recipient and the person giving aid. So I think there are a lot of hopeful stories out there. And what I hope you continue to do, Anya, is continue to report on the hopefulness and the positive, because we all know that the media loves to highlight the negative. But there's a lot out there that we've learned that I think isn't being reported on enough. Yeah, I totally agree. And I definitely want to do more of that. I think it can be a challenge, but people love to hear about stories about what's working, you know, and scrutinize it and take it apart and say, well, how does this work and how do we do it? Another area I'm super interested in right now is just simply the power of mentorship. 
And that's not necessarily just a school-based initiative. You know, you can do it with community-based initiatives as well. But having that one caring adult in the kid's life that's going to be invested in their futures. We talk so much about the problem of social isolation and people that live alone and the multi-generational opportunity now that you have, you know, some elders that have been feeling really isolated. How can we harness that potential for good? And how can we get more of the village involved in our kids' success? I love it. Anya, thank you so much for your work, for your ongoing empathy and curiosity about these really complex subjects, your ability to talk in a nuanced way about things that often get politically polarized. And your book is just a wonderful asset to children and parents and communities. So thank you so much for joining me and for doing what you do. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thanks, Anya. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C. 